I'm Gloria Halverson, and my topic is healthcare consequences of human trafficking, just to make sure you're all in the right place. And um, what we're going to talk about today is the importance of healthcare in traffic populations. Uh, we're going to describe the health of uh, human trafficking victims and identify how to take appropriate steps in the assessment and management of trafficking victims. Um, and I want to start with a story. Um, it's a story, um, this is actually uh, from Jeff Barrows, and I think it really shows well the interface of human trafficking and healthcare. So as you hear the story, think about how healthcare may have had an impact on Jill's life. Jill uh, was a runaway teen at age 14. She was in a sexual and physically abusive uh, set of circumstances, and she was initially homeless, but then she was approached in a suburban mall by a man named Bruce, and he promised her that he'd help her to find work. And um, so he took her to his office. Well, his office was a cellar in his house, and he hung her by her wrist from the ceiling with leather straps. He stripped her, he beat her, he tortured her until she agreed to work as a prostitute. And the torture included being hung by her neck, which resulted in permanent scarring and damage to her vocal cords, which affected her speech. Once um, she agreed to serve as a prostitute, um, Bruce brought paying customers into his home to have sex with Jill. And um, some clients would pay extra, and then they'd get to do what they wanted to do with Jill. Um, during the next three years, she suffered horrible torture and repeated rape by clients of Bruce. She eventually became pregnant, and Bruce attempted to perform an abortion. Um, he botched it, and she began to hemorrhage, so he needed to take her to the hospital. Um, at the hospital, Bruce claimed that he was Jill's older brother and that she was schizophrenic. And this story was accepted without any hesitation. In fact, the nurses commented on how wonderful a brother Bruce was because he just didn't leave her side and he just was always available. He was answering all the questions um, and they really uh, respected Bruce a lot. Um, she was there for three days and um, she never had a psych consult um, and she was never questioned without Bruce being there. And because of her schizophrenia, Jill often hallucinated about very strange things like being held captive. But of course, Bruce let them know that this wasn't the truth. Um, so she had to go to the operating room for uh, DNC to take out their remaining products of conception. Um, she received several units of blood that was transfused, and she needed antibiotics to prevent infection. Um, as I said, she never had a mental health consultation. She was never questioned without Bruce present. She never had a social service consult, and she was discharged from the hospital without her having the ability to get free. Um, life progressed. Uh, Jill was moved from place to place, and at one point, they stopped at a truck stop in Arizona, and he took off her blindfold and her shackles, and he told her to walk into the truck stop and get a Pepsi, 
and she was so dehydrated and tired that she fainted on the step of the truck stop, and the truck stop called um, the paramedics. When they got there and looked at Jill, they found that she was dirty from head to toe. She had sores on her ankles and wrists from where she was bound. The corners of her mouth were bruised from where her gag had been uh, for several days. And the paramedics treated her for dehydration, and they left. So then um, Jill then had her hands tied behind her back and put back into the truck. And a woman and her husband, um, who were driving a Cadillac, saw this all happening. But they never reported it to anybody. They minded their own business. And it was only later that Jill was able to escape because Bruce was related on on unconnected charges. And um, they took him to jail. And then they went and searched his house. And they, they found her locked in a closet, gagged and blindfolded. And that's how she eventually became free. One very sad thing about this is that it all occurred prior to Jill reaching the age of 18. So... Did you see how the healthcare system came into play there several times? Often when people talk about trafficking, they don't talk about health. Now, I usually start a presentation like this when I'm talking at hospital emergency departments and other places with a background about human trafficking, sort of human trafficking 101, to be sure we're all on the same page. And I'm actually not going to do that today because there are several other um, very good talks coming up that are going to do that. And unfortunately, this would have been better later on, but this is, is the first one. Um, Jeff Barrows is giving a talk, and he's going to be repeating that. It will be done twice. Laura Letterer has a, a plenary talk tonight, and she also has a workshop on some new research um, that was published this year. So there's lots of opportunities for you to get the basic information but just some very general thing is we are not talking about a small problem. We are talking between 21 and 27 million trafficked people in the world today. This is huge. If you think it doesn't happen in your town, you're probably wrong. It happens just about everywhere and in every country. And just by the, for the definition, sex trafficking is the use of force, fraud, or coercion to cause an adult to work within the sex trafficking industry or the sex industry. And for minors, if they're involved in commercial sex, they're automatically victims of trafficking. They don't have to meet the, meet the force, fraud, or coercion definition because it's difficult for a young person to make appropriate um, decisions and often get into problems they wouldn't have wanted to. There, sex trafficking is what we're going to talk about the most, but labor trafficking is also very important, and that includes um, work with force, fraud, or coercion um, in a whole series of ways. There are two broad categories of human trafficking, as I've just mentioned in the definitions. Labor trafficking, and you can see a list of common ones there, and also sex trafficking, and you can see a list of what's included under sex trafficking there. So that's our general background of the type of victims we're going to be talking about. And just one more general thing I want to mention. 
this is um, both a source and a destination country here in the United States. But when you look at the women from the United States who are involved in trafficking, teenage prostitution in the, is the most common form of trafficking here today. And it's important to be aware of that. It's spreading a lot. This is um, a poster that's put out. And the Internet especially and chat rooms um, have really caused um, this to blossom even more. So what are the causes of trafficking? Well, the cause of trafficking is um, a desire for people to buy sex. If we didn't have that, obviously we wouldn't, we wouldn't have trafficking. But behind all of that, what gets a person involved is very multifactorial, as you can see on this uh, slide. It would be very nice if we could just say, for example, um, educating girls would solve the problem of human trafficking. It would go a long way, but it's not the whole answer. Um, gender differences are important. Most victims of trafficking are women and children, though it can happen to boys and to men. Um, the new technologies up there, you saw what the Internet can do. This is crime that's really spreading today. For example, uh, the other big crime would be drugs. And if I have a drug and I sell it to you, my product's gone. If I have a girl and I sell her to you, then I can sell her to you and then to you and then to you. And I still have my product. So it's very lucrative. And uh, mafia and a lot of big crime is now getting into this. Prior sexual uh, abuse, corruption, uh, areas where there's war or government instability, all of these things together um, are important that we recognize and deal with if we're ever going to be able to find some solutions to this problem. I like this quote a lot um, because I think it does help us understand the impact. Sexual trauma is unique from other forms of trauma. It is a violation of the most intimate and personal aspects of the self. One's own body becomes the setting in which the atrocities are perpetrated. So the crime scene is the body itself. So with that as introduction, let's talk about health. And trafficking harms women in insidious ways and creates very messy health problems. The physical and mental health consequences are not a side effect of trafficking, but a central theme. And trafficking is a health care issue in that health care is central to restoring the well-being of the trafficking survival. We, survivor, we can't separate it out. It's very important that the healthcare field um, gets on board and is trained um, with us. Um, there have been a few studies done, um, and actually there's more and more coming, coming out, looking at the knowledge that U.S. healthcare professionals have about trafficking, and unfortunately it's pretty bleak. Um, if you think about it, who comes in contact with trafficked people? The police, Johns, and maybe healthcare people, because they need healthcare. So it's very important healthcare providers are educated. This was a study done on emergency room personnel in four large ERs in the Northeast United States. 98% had no formal training on trafficking, 74% knew what trafficking was. 
19% felt they could define trafficking, and 6% thought they had treated a victim of trafficking. I can't tell you how many times I've talked about this at hospitals, and when I'm done, the people who come up and say, you know, after listening to that, it makes me think of this woman I saw at 3 o'clock in the morning, or this woman came into our reproductive health clinic. It's out there, and you're taking the right first step now to get educated about this. Um, one of the problems, too, is lack of preventive services. Um, traffickers do frequently say, okay, dear, it's time to go get your pap smear or mammogram done. They're not into preventive things. Um, lack of access to care. In this study, you could see that many of the victims couldn't even didn't even know where they could go to get help, and late services. A trafficker isn't going to bother with a lot of basic maintenance that, that isn't necessary to spend his money, but if he finds that his product, she's really ill, and he may lose her services, he's going to take her in to get care. So you may see these people with a much later stage of disease than you might otherwise uh, see. This study was done of trafficking victims in Los Angeles, the other coast. These are women who were freed, and half of them, half, had been seen by a healthcare professional sometime in their captivity, and in none of those cases did that result in them being freed, just as we saw in the case with Jill. So let's look at what some of the health issues are that are associated with uh, trafficking, and to start with, they have a host of physical and psychological problems stemming from their environment, where they're kept. They have inhumane living conditions. There's poor sanitation. They have inadequate nutrition. They have poor personal hygiene, brutal physical and emotional abuse, dangerous workplace conditions, and a lack of quality medical care. So from the get-go, just because of their circumstances, they're at high risk and they have a lot of health care problems. Um, additionally, how do traffickers get people to cooperate and sell themselves? Well, they condition them in various ways that you can see here. And if you're being starved or you're being tortured or you're being raped or you're forced to use drugs, that may all, all also be affecting your health. So a lot of just about their circumstance and situation affects their health. This is a picture from a brothel that I worked in in Mumbai, Mumbai India. And um, this is the room that the woman lives in. And in fact, when she's working, her kids often are under the bed. Um, there's not room really for anything but that bed in their room. And that's how they live. Um, we would be careful as dust started to come because of the rats that were out running in the streets because of the garbage that was everywhere. These kind of public health circumstances lead to bad health situations. So with poor living conditions, they get malnutrition, diarrhea, scabies, lice, typhoid, tuberculosis, infatigo, all very common um, in a lot of trafficked people. All right, especially for the students who are used to uh, being asked questions, Someone comes in to see you, and this is what you find. What is it? Mm. Scabies. 
How about this? Lice, yeah. Head lice. Sometimes I've seen kids with enough lice on them that you've seen them jump to the kid next to them. Um, On top of that, we talked about the physical abuse these people have. So the kinds of things you're likely to see are fractured bones, joint dislocations, bruises, cuts and puncture wounds, dental injuries, facial injuries, burns, head trauma, perforated eardrums. Here's just some examples of trafficked women uh, and some of the damage done to them. Um, Many times traffickers, because they want an attractive product to have men want to buy them, they tend to burn and bruise and do all these things um, where they're covered by clothes more than on their face. But you can also see them looking like this. These are uh, two friends of mine now, Marguerite and Martha, both um, have now come out of trafficking and prostitution down in Nicaragua. And you can see it's not uncommon uh, to see their front teeth knocked out. You also see very bad dental health because they don't get dental care. Um, Frequently today, tattooing will be done. They're branded. Uh, My say across the lower back, uh, Daddy's Girl, something like that, or the the pimp's name. So um, that could be assigned to you. And another thing to think about is traumatic brain injury. Unfortunately, you get uh, beat up around your head a lot and you can end up with some very serious damage. Uh, In one study, um, looking at victims of trafficking, 92% said that they had physical trauma with broken bones, concussions, burns. And it's estimated that 2.5 million prostituted children are physically assaulted, and out of that, 6,900 are murdered. Now, these are obviously estimates because nobody knows exactly how many children are involved. So I don't like absolute statistics in this field, but you get the idea. It's a lot. Um, Sexual trauma, tearing, especially with younger um, kids, a lot of sexual trauma. Um, The youngest child that I've taken care of that's been rescued from human trafficking was five years old already rescued. I have a five-year-old grandchild, and it's really hard to look at them and think, wow. All right. Um, Infectious diseases that they pick up. What's this? Hepatitis. That's right. Um, Hepatitis is common. Um, Sexually transmitted infections, very common. Here's a list of probably the most common ones. Um, but there are many more that you can see in this population. Um, And the reason is, um, obviously, a lot of them have um, multiple sexual partners, and that that has a lot to do with sexually transmitted infection. Um, Also, many of the victims of sexual trafficking report to being forced to have sex with as many as 40 to 50 men a day. So how many sexual partners does that add up to? It's mind-boggling. Condom use. A lot of these women don't use condoms for two reasons. One, when you're being trafficked, you really don't have any control about making the man use a condom. They don't. And number two, 
some of the women who have control don't use condoms because they get paid more not to use a condom. And they have children to feed. And so they choose not to do that. Um, trauma increases your risk of STIs. Um, the term 24-7 comes from the area of trafficking and prostitution. These women are available 24 hours a day, seven days a week, whether they're menstruating or not. And women who have sex while they're menstruating are more prone to get sexually transmitted infections. Um, douching. A lot of st- uh, interviews with trafficked women or prostitutes show that they douche a lot, probably to try to um, just cleanse themselves, at least psychologically. But that pushes the disease to their upper tract, and you see more sexually transmitted infections. So this group is at very high risk for that. And, of course, one of the worst sexually transmitted infections would be HIV-AIDS. And this is a large study, and you can see that um, those under age 20 had more than twice the, the positive HIV rate. This is a study done in India. Um, they are more prone to pick of HIV. And this one, which was done in Nepal, also shows that when they were trafficked when they were less than 15, they had a much higher incidence of HIV. And obviously, the longer they're trafficked, the more likely they are to have HIV. Um, I've been in some areas. I work uh, a lot uh, in Nicaragua uh, at a place called Casa de Esperanza. And um, we don't see a lot of HIV there. We probably pick up one case on every trip that we're there. The percent is is low in the country. It must be about 3 or 4%. On the other hand, I've worked in brothels in Mumbai, and in the alley we worked, 75 to 80% of the women were HIV positive. So this will vary by the area um, that you're working. Um, sex trafficking has direct cause and effect linkages to the spread and mutation of the AIDS virus and also contributes to the global dispersion of HIV-AIDS. When you look at countries with lower rates, where it's going to come in is through the trafficked women. So this is a big public health problem. Um, Women and children victims of sex trafficking, um, if they have HIV AIDS, they're also more likely to pick up other STIs, such as this. What is this one? This person comes in to see you. They're going to be in a lot of pain. This is herpes, probably the second most common um, STI we see here in the United States. What about this one? Condyloma or genital warts, another STI. What about this one? Molluscum, thank you. Um, how about this? Actually, on that, uh, the tongue over on the left, that's uh, condyloma too. That's HPV of a tongue. And there is just a sore on that um, tongue to the right. That's syphilis. Uh, what does this tell you? There's a bacteria. There's an infection on the cervix. There's um, scarring at the, of the liver, Fitzhugh-Curtis syndrome. Do you know what causes that? These are late 
side effects. Chlamydia, which is an STI that sometimes is silent, but you're more likely to see chronic damage in these people because it's not been treated. Um, anybody know the phrase about uh, can't pee, can't see, can't climb a tree? The disease previously known as Reiter's syndrome. That's right. Um, sexually transmitted. How about this? What's this? Primary syphilis. We don't see this too often in general in our country. Um, we started screening in Nicaragua for this, and we first three of ten we tested were positive. Fortunately, the rate dropped later, but a whole epidemic of untreated people. Um, this one? It's a bubo in the middle. Also syphilis. This one? Secondary syphilis. This one? Congenital syphilis. Keep that in mind. As we started getting all the positives down in Nicaragua, we suddenly thought, oh, my goodness, we had no idea how long these people had had it and had never been tested before. What about their kids? So we had to bring the kids in and start testing the kids, too. This is tertiary syphilis. That's what's called a guma. And this is uh, someone who is HIV positive. And when you're and <clears throat> with HIV and the compromise of your immune system, you're liable to see worse-looking um, uh, lesions. Cervical cancer, I bring that up because there are still almost half a million new cases a year. 80% of them occur in developing countries. And at least 200,000 women die of cervical cancer each year. Um, in Africa and uh, Asia, it's the most common cause of cancer-related deaths. Because of pap smears in this country, we don't think about cervical cancer as much. But what are the risk factors for cervical cancer? Early age of first intercourse, multiple sexual partners. I know for me in our colposcopy clinic at the hospital, I have the students and residents and someone comes in with an abnormal pap smear and a abnormal colposcopy, and you're thinking they have something precancerous, you say, hmm, how old? You, you try to show the students, how old were you when you first had intercourse? Oh, they were only 16, you know. Um, how many sexual partners have you had? Oh, they've had six or seven. Well, suddenly take it to these girls who are seven years old and having 30 or 40 partners a day, their risk is incredible. And think of it in this country, make sure they get a pap smear done. You can't get pap smears in most low-resource countries overseas if you're on a medical mission. I've done um, focus groups when I was teaching on this and asked the health providers in the group in their country how many of them could get pap smears, and for almost all of them, it's zero. So um, I just want to mention to you there's a test called visual inspection with acetic acid, and that we have used very successfully in low-resource settings um, to pick up precancerous changes in these women. Um, we have screened several hundred women now in Nicaragua, and our risk of um, 
carcinoma in situ and high-grade dysplasia in these women is way, way high compared to what you would see in the United States. And um, this is what it looks like. Basically, all you need is some vinegar, and uh, you put it on the cervix, and there's a negative one, and there's a positive one. And then the positive ones need further screening. Um, one thing that's important when you're dealing with a traffic population is to keep in mind that, say you could get a pap smear. It turns out I can in Nicaragua. We have an amazing program. We have one-hour turnaround. So we get it while the person is still there. Um, and we have a leap machine, and we have a cryo gun, and all of these things. But if you send a pap off somewhere, and it takes you a couple weeks to get an answer, let's just say it takes you two days, these people disappear again. And you can't find them. So it's important that programs use, this is a picture of a cryo gun that's been placed on a cervix for cryosurgery, that you do a see and treat program. So you, you see them, you diagnose it, and you treat them immediately. And there's been long-term studies that show the cervical cancer risk from just one screening in a person's lifetime is significant in cutting it down. Um, so that's something to uh, think about in these women. Another thing to think about is um, pregnancy. And especially uh, pregnancy, I think all of these women are at high risk because they really don't get uh, a lot of prenatal care and they're not <clears throat> taking the best care of themselves because they can't under their circumstances. But there's also a lot of teens. And teen pregnancies are um, more high risk. Lancet um, had a study that estimated that 9 million girls per year um, in prostituted children get pregnant, and so you wind up with approximately 4,700 maternal deaths, a million and a quarter induced abortions, and a third of a million abortion-related complications, and 710 abortion-related deaths. So pregnancy is a significant uh, issue. Um, Abortion complications, especially when you have guys like Bruce. Um, I can tell you that in um, Nicaragua, the, almost all the women I see are on Depo-Provera. Um, and so they sometimes choose not to get it, and they do get pregnant. They've, they've got kids, and they do have abortions. But working in a brothel in Mumbai and asking every single woman I saw, what do you use for con contraception, um, 100% answer was nothing. And so abortion is their main main way of um, contracepting. They tend to have complications, would be prolonged bleeding, heavy bleeding, fever, lower abdominal pain. Um, and there's late complications to abortions, prematurity, incompetent cervix, placenta previa, infertility, chronic pelvic pain. So a lot of health care sequelae. Uh, from this. Um, Long-term consequences, unwanted pregnancies, infertility, chronic pelvic pain, HIV AIDS, ectopic pregnancies, cervical cancer, all from the gynecologic infections um, that these women pick up. Now, this is a study that was done in Europe in the early 2000s, and they interviewed women who were coming out of trafficking, they were rescued, and in the first 14 days they were out, they surveyed them and asked them about their general health. 
There's actually now a very excellent study uh, done in the United States on this that was just published this year. Um, Laura Letterer is the um, primary author of it. She's here. She's giving a workshop on it, so I chose not to repeat and put her new data in, but it's uh, very interesting and has a lot of implications for caring for these people. But interestingly, you can see headaches, dizzy spells, memory problems, back pain, fatigue, various sexual health problems. Um, nothing to pin your hat on. You know, it's hard to say, oh, if they have this and I see them, they must be trafficked. These are vague sort of complaints. And when you think about it, you know, if it's 3 o'clock in the morning and you're working in the emergency room and somebody comes in and they're poorly, um, their hygiene is poor and they're not dressed well and um, they've been using drugs and they tell you that they have a headache and their back hurts and they're tired, you're not real excited about spending a lot of time with that person. You want to get out of that room pretty quick, at least most of us do, and we have to remember the vague kinds of complaints that people come in with. And also the fact that a lot of these, the dizzy spells, the headaches, the memory problems, the fatigue, are going to interfere with somebody being able to give you a good history. It's going to be able to interfere, you know, um, with them being able to tell you what you need to know. There are a lot of mental health consequences uh, associated with trafficking. Here's a study. Um, that was done and showed, you can see, a high percentage PTSD, anxiety, depression, insomnia, hyperalertness, loneliness, fear, tension, lots of mental health issues. This, um, the younger a person is when they are taking into trafficking, the more likely they are to have disassociated ego states and mind-body separations. They have a lot of shame, grief, distrust. Some of them hate men. Um, in one um, self-report, 67% had suicidal thoughts and hated themselves. The problem is these issues don't go away when someone is rescued. These are long-term problems that need to be dealt with. For children... They're, the mental health issues are worse because they're younger. And you can see this whole list here that are really going to affect them learning in school, having relationships later in life, um, affecting everything they do. Uh, it's not uncommon to work with some of these people after they've been um, out of the trafficking situation and find that you know they're having flashbacks, they're having panic attacks, um, very, very disrupted life because of the mental health consequences that happens. Also, substance abuse is very large. And for two reasons. One is that the pimp often gets women addicted to things because that's more control that he or she, there's women pimps too, have over this person because they're dependent on them for their drugs to get their fixes. So they're often addicted. Secondly, women will do it to self-soothe. For example, in Nicaragua, the most common thing we see is sniffing glue because it's very inexpensive to do. 
And women don't know what to do with all these emotions and feelings that they're having from their situation. Um, Cognitive behavioral therapy seems to be um, the best treatment thus far. Um, Trauma-informed mental health services are important. And concomitantly, you have to do substance abuse therapy at the same time you're working on these other things. All right, if this tends to be the, the problems... Let's talk about my computer froze. Hmm. Okay. Um, How do we assess traffic people? Remember that they often have routine illnesses and injuries just like everybody else. So they'll have diabetes or they'll have hypertension, and we can't forget about those things. Um, Occupational health. I bring up because of the labor trafficking market, Um, repetitive patterns of injury, um, hearing loss, uh, recent trauma due to abuse by uh, their boss, which often includes sexual abuse, uh, chemical burns, not being given protective gear um, to work in a poorly ventilated space. So because of the labor trafficking that you're dealing with, they may come in with some of these occupational Problems. They say that pictures say a thousand, uh, thousand words, so I want to put up this picture. One is Courtney from Colorado and one's Melissa from Florida. And the first picture on both these girls is before they were trafficked. And the last picture is while they were being trafficked. And I think that that about sums it up. The problem is huge. Also keep in mind um, children of trafficked women. Um, This baby is Falak. Um, He was two years old, and um, he was passed around by the pimps. And when he was brought into the hospital, he had two broken arms. He had human bites all over him. He had multiple surgeries, and he died. Um, Another woman I know of in India... um, the man got mad, and he, she had a four-year-old daughter, and he took a broomstick, and he stuck it up inside of her, and actually she eviscerated her intestines out her vagina. Um, these children can be very abused. They have no protection, and pimps will use kids to get at the woman that is being trafficked and have control over them. So if this is such a horrible mess, how come um, it's not that easy to take care of these people if they do come in to see you? You're not going to be the horse, uh, the knight on the white horse, the stallion, galloping in, saving the day. Um, a lot of these people that you see really don't seem to want your help. And how could that possibly be? Well, remember that they develop loyalties and positive feelings toward the trafficker as a coping mechanism. Um, That's where they get their food. That's where they get their um, hair and makeup done, their clothes. Um, They're very, very dependent on this person. They can't go to the bathroom without they're okay. That's also where many of them feel, even though they may be treating brutally, on the other hand, that's where they get love from. Um, You remember, most of you aren't old enough to know about Patty Hearst, probably, Um, 
or the Stockholm Syndrome, an heiress in Southern California who was kidnapped and then was caught uh, with the gang that kidnapped her holding up a bank. She'd sort of gone over to the dark side. But, but this happens with these people. goes on for a while. I think you get the idea. Sort of this love-hate relationships develop. This is a quote from a trafficker. You promise to go to heaven and she'll follow you to hell. Um, trafficked persons also may not cooperate because they fear reprisals from the trafficker. Um, they um, are, are afraid of what will happen to them. Um, if they're foreigners, they worry about their legal status in the destination country of being deported. Um, they're susceptible to penalties, fine, or punishment by traffickers. Um, in our city, I'm from Milwaukee, um, they have this hot and cold treatment that they do. And this one gal was telling me how um, they'll put them in a bathtub of ice and uh, they have to stay there until a cigarette burns down. And then they'll pour wood alcohol on them and set them on fire. And she said, what's well, really hard is they'll do this to one of the other girls for something you've done. Tremendous mind control that they have. Um, They'll lie um, to people, and um, they frequently move from place to place, so they don't even know where they are. Sometimes they don't speak the language, so it's hard to get away. Well, that's the problem here again. Um, This is a very complex group of people to work with. They can feel guilty, um, feeling complicit in what's occurred, um, guilty over any criminal activities that they've participated in, shame. Um, they really don't feel they're worth anything. They've been told over and over again that they are not of any worth. They don't trust officials very much. Over and over in so many of these countries, it's the politicians, it's the um, police that, are, that the young girls are saved for. They get to use them. The police will come in in their uniforms, so they don't see the police as someone that will save them. Or they have been arrested, because prostitution in this country is illegal, they've been arrested many times, even though they are victims and people are now understanding it's not their fault. 
they're afraid of police and officials. Um, they're, they have to earn a lot of money. Um, they, they feel hopeless about what's going on. What signs can you look for of control that are suggestive of trafficking? An overly controlling boyfriend, or it can be someone who says they're the dad or someone who says they're the mother. It can be a sister. The, the pimp may send out one of the other girls from the uh, brothel to go with her to make sure she doesn't try to get away or say the wrong thing. So there will be women um, with them. They can be very anxious or uh, fearful. Um, they, they, they're confused. They don't know where they are. Some of these girls are really moved regularly from city to city, um, so they have less chance of getting caught. They frequently lie about their age. Um, that things just don't fit together. Um, so when you're interviewing, there are some things that are important. One, you do need to get informed consent. Um, they don't feel safe, so you have to reinforce over and over that they're safe. What's really critical is separating the patient from the escort or the interpreter or the person who's with, with them. Video clips are from um, ECPAT and uh, from GEMS. They've put out a nice CD of um, interviews of women who have been trafficked speaking to healthcare professionals, trying to tell them what they think they should do. So in interviewing, um, again, you have to assure anonymity, um, try to keep people in uniform away. Listen to and respect each person's assessment of the situation and don't put her or yourself in any danger.
sure that you um, are culturally appropriate in working with these. For example, in many cultures, you've got to have a woman um, interviewer or a woman examiner um, to work in that society. That's not the case in ours, but it is in many places. And you've got to be sure that you carefully select interpreters, that you do not use the person who's come in with them because they know the language and they will translate for, for you. Do not use them. That's actually from the American Medical Women's Association. They have an online um, course you can take um, that also has interviews of these women. Um, there are questions that you can ask to try to find out more, such as those that you're seeing here. Um, do you have to ask permission to eat, sleep, or go to the bathroom? What are your working or living conditions like? Um, have you been asked to have sex with multiple men each night? Do you have to reach a quota of money? Um, I think Jeff in his talks will probably go over this in more detail. But as well as the questions to ask, there are questions not to ask. It really doesn't help to say, have you been trafficked? Because these people have no idea what that means. They don't know they've been trafficked. They don't understand that term. They don't realize that they're a victim. Um, they've made a mistake going with this person, and they feel very guilty. Um, so they won't understand you. Also, things like how many sexual partners have you had? Someone um, going on a trip, I was consulting for them, uh, working in a low-resource country, and they were developing a questionnaire to ask the women there when they came in with questions like that. How many sexual partners have you had? Um, in what ways have you been abused? You need to stay away from these personal kind of questions that are for your interest. Um, first of all, they don't know. Second, they don't trust you and they aren't going to tell you. Um, and it's going to push them back farther away. So it's better to stay away from that, stick to what's necess necessary medically so you can uh, develop trust with them. 
And what do you do if you suspect a person may be a victim of trafficking? Again, you need to gather basic information so you can try to find them. Um, you need in your exam and your evaluation and your history to start asking very specific questions that you might not otherwise ask, recognizing, for example, in a systems review, neurologic and behavioral things that have to do with head trauma and uh, headaches and things like that, um, things about nutrition, history of burns, impetigo, things that, again, may support that this person is being trafficked. Um, you've, you may want to include a forensic specialist to collect um, legal um, evidence for you, a sane nurse that's specifically trained in that. That's not always necessary, but it might be something to consider. You might want to check their vision and hearing. Look closely at their mouth to do a neurologic exam. There's additional things you may want to do besides the chief complaint. You want to be trying to gain their trust and let them know that you're there to help them. Your first priority is their safety, um, and you're going to give them the care that they need. And it may take several visits to really establish that, but this is how you start. What's very important in working with these people is that you do trauma-informed care. This is different than the trauma-informed mental health care we talked about. This is a very holistic approach, a treatment of someone who's had complex trauma. Some people describe the psychological problems of trafficked people as comparable to those who have been prisoners of war and have been tortured. It's serious. And um, you, you need to really provide a very safe environment where they feel that they're in control, where they feel that they're safe. Um, all of that is very important. And in your institution, develop a protocol. The first time to think about this is not when the person comes in and then it's, wow, I think they might be trafficked. Now what do we do? because you're not going to have the time to do it. You have to know what your resources are. You need to know what's available. You have to have a team put together. And that's a big move right now, I think, after educating healthcare professionals, is to get them to develop protocols for where they're working. And also keep in mind that there's not a lot of research in this area, and it's really important that more of it is done. This is a picture from a street in Mumbai at one of the brothels. Um, they say in this brothel, 20,000 men come on a Sunday afternoon. And you can see uh, the man who's been shot there and somebody robbing him. and Those people just sitting there not doing anything. There's a lot of this going on with trafficking. A lot of bad things happening to people and a lot of people are not doing anything. And I think the reason for that is not that we don't care. I think the reason is we don't know. We don't identify and we don't know what to do about it. So you have to get educated yourself. And there is more and more that's being done. There's all sorts of posters and work going on. There's um, labels put on soap wrappers in hotels at the city where the Super Bowl is because so many trafficked women are being brought in, numbers they can get help, hotel industries, airline industries, people being trained, um, ads be, being up um, to just educate people.
This was in an airport that I was in in Asia. Um, so awareness is the first step of action to take. It's empowering. It brings responsibility with it. And um, it starts from us. So um, are there any questions? We have some time if you would like to ask anything. And I would suggest some of the other sessions to get a more broader picture of trafficking. There's just too much to talk about in, in a short period, and so we need to limit it to the health consequences here. Yes? Um, it's a new program. Um, it's available online. Thank you for asking that. Um, and as I said, it's, it's, four, it's four short modules. Um, they have some questions afterwards. I can tell you, um, it, you know, it's good because it's got these videos. A much more comprehensive one that's got 11 modules that are almost an hour each, so 40 minutes versus 11 hours, um, is on the Christian Medical and Dental Association website. There's four of us that develop those modules. There are four, you can get CME credit with them. And um, you can just, you know, pick one at a time. One's on domestic trafficking. One's on international trafficking. One's on mental health issues. One's on physical issues. Uh, one's on labor trafficking. One's on um, the spiritual components and the spiritual mandates, bef- bef- you know, caring for these people. Um, there's a lot to choose from. And if you just go on the CMDA website, you can get that. There are a lot of uh, resources that are available today, more uh, more and more. Um, I want to see. No, I didn't put on here um, a list of them. But um, there are, are more and more being developed right now, more courses that are going on um, that you can look for if there's a major city near you. A lot of programs being put on in emergency departments, OBGYN departments, um, outpatient health clinics, surgeon care clinics. Yes? Who did you say was on the first four modules? I'm sorry? Who the American Medical Women's Association has this online. And that's where I took two of those brief um, vignettes from. Yes? Uh-huh. And a while back, you know, there was a time when we could actually isolate family members when we want to interview patients. And now with increased corporate compliance, now that's being taken away from us. So how, if you try to, you know, figure, I want to interview this person by myself, and, you know, because you suspect something, how would you be able to get around that? Because now, before, we could tell you, you know, you need to step out and let me talk to this person. Now we're not allowed to do it anymore. So now family members are actually wow. allowed to tell us, that's a, that's the first that I've heard that. That's that's really scary. Uh, if you heard the question, it was working in a hospital that where family members are allowed to stay and there's nothing that you can do about it. Um, I think what this comes down to developing protocols, and uh, it's critical. It, no traffic person is going to talk to you when they are in danger with um, someone watching over every word that they're saying. And uh, if you have a protocol, it's got to say in it, if you suspect someone of being trafficked, the first thing you do is separate them from that person. And you may have to say, you know, we're taking them to x-ray. It's hospital policy that we cannot have anybody in for this part of it. 
your hospital has to come up with things to allow that because this is an international um, guidelines now on how to do this. But probably without a protocol, uh, you won't be able to impact it because hospital policy is hospital policy. And, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. They need education. Your administration needs education. And you need a champion to get in there and make a protocol. And then in that protocol, you'll have the exception to the rule. But, you know, um, people don't think well outside the box in big corporate institutions like, like your institution, which I, I know that place. And so, you know, you've got to have a protocol and then, then you're protected because you have to protect yourself as well. Well, I think you talk within the department. Get somebody in um, to talk about trafficking and teach them about it. And then you got to get a team because you've got to get social work involved. You've got to get risk management involved. Um, you've got to get the receptionist who's taking intake information, like getting cell phone numbers and things like that. You have to have um, – you don't want to be alone with person. You probably need to have a witness in with you, especially if you're doing gynecologic things. So they all have to be trained and on board ahead of time to get that protocol written, and that would be one component of it. Yes? Yeah, they'll all go to the slide and the talk will all be online. Yeah. One more question. Yes? That's a great idea. Um, that's, that's a great idea. It's not being done that I know of. It also would be very difficult to institute because they use a different name in each place they go. You know, you'd probably need uh, pictures and things. But, um, yeah, that is part of the problem because if they go around to different places, you won't get uh, the pattern. Fortunately, um, like an OBGYN clinic, uh, places like that may have more recurrent visits. Or there are people that will go with primary care or be in with a pediatrician for, the, for their children. So it's not all urgent care but or emergency rooms, but that does tend to be common. Okay, thank you very much.